This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Hi, hello. What is polio? <laughs> it rhymes. I'm not sorry. I think this is I where we're going to be today. I think that made my day. Your day speech is terrible. <laughs> today, we're going to talk about polio. So, okay, polio is a disease, and the disease is caused by a virus called poliovirus, which is honestly, it's all very obvious, and that's like, I'm fine. I'm, I'm very appreciative of that because I stumble through all these bacterial and virus names and they're all these complex words and mycobacterium and what have you. And it's just nice when polio is caused by polio and makes you have polio, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for this kind of streamlined process. Exactly. So, I mean, to complicate things a little bit, there are three types of wild polio virus. But, again, very obviously, they are named type 1, type 2, and type 3. So, so far, polio is just nailing it. It's really nailing it. And they essentially cause all the same symptoms, but type 1 is the most likely to cause paralysis. And polio is most commonly spread through ingested fecal matter, one of our favorite modes of transmission. Um, <laughs> it's really similar to many of the other diseases we've discussed in that, like, contaminated food, contaminated water, poor general hygiene... Um, can all be really problematic in transmission of the disease. And it can be spread from person to person, but that's quite rare. Once you get it, it typically has this 7 to 10 day incubation period before you start getting symptomatic. But incubation period can go all the way up to 35 days. So there is a bit of a range. Children are most commonly infected. And in some, the symptoms are really mild and they can go totally unrecognized because it could be anything. Fever, headache, vomiting, stiffness in your neck. Like that's some people get a bad cold and that's what they feel like. And that's what happens in like 95% of the population. It's worth remembering that those people are still infectious. So even if they don't feel quite that ill, they can still spread it to others. For the remaining 5% of people who get polio, there are a bunch of other symptoms that are especially associated with the brain and spinal cord. So that includes paresthesia or like basically just pins and needles all over your body, which honestly just sounds horrible. Like it's just so frustrating when you're all tingly like that. You can also get meningitis or an infection of the spinal cord and the brain. And that affects one out of every 25 people infected one out of every 200 people infected will become completely paralyzed, usually in their legs. So like FDR? Yes, like FDR. Okay. And sometimes it's permanent, sometimes it's not permanent. There's a lot of variation there. But it is actually quite a small proportion of the population that get polio. But of those who get paralyzed, up to 10% of them can die when the paralysis spreads up their body and their breathing muscles are paralyzed. So they can't breathe on their own. And that's when we see things like the iron lung, which I assume you're going to talk a bit about. Yeah, but briefly, it's an early respirator technology. Yeah, with the most terrifying name. Yeah, and it's essentially like you're in this like case, almost like a, like a round egg-shaped coffin. Yeah, it looks with like a coffin. Only, with only your head showing. And normally when you, when you see the pictures of... Um, of people in the iron lung, they have a little mirror in front of their yeah. faces so that they can see around them. It's actually Terrifying. really sad. That it is quite rare, but as with most diseases, it affects children often much stronger, and so you see a lot of kids in those. And also, even if you're a kid who seems to totally recover from a mild case of polio, you can develop muscle pain, weakness, or even paralysis as an adult, like many, many years later, and that's called Again, very obviously, post-polio syndrome. So A++ to whomever named all the terrible things that were happening here. Technically, only people who have the paralytic form of the infection are actually defined as having polio, even though they may have still had the same virus. And I think the other thing that's interesting about this in advance is that we're seeing this clear distinction between diseases that are very easily recognizable and how they are treated 
versus diseases that are really easily confused with other ones. Like we talked last time about smallpox, super easy to identify, became something that was eradicated, became something you wanted to study because you could pinpoint it so easily. Whereas like other diseases like polio, cholera, diphtheria, whatever, have such similar symptoms that it becomes really challenging Mm -hmm. to like figure out what to do with it. And this is going to be a huge theme for us when we start talking about the history because um, it really affects our ability to uh, assess historically how prevalent polio may or may not have been. But more on that later. Yeah, and we'll also talk about something called the lameness study, which talks about paralysis too. Anyway, much like Hansen's disease or smallpox, polio can't be treated once you have it. And we still don't have a treatment for polio. So it has to be prevented with vaccines. Um, And I compare it to Hansen's disease also because while the fatality rate is actually quite low, there are still many, many people who live with the side effects of the disease even after they've survived it. And of course, I compare it to smallpox because there's really no treatment and also because eradication efforts are underway. At the moment, wild polio is only in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is actually very impressive. And it has pretty much been eradicated everywhere else. And I will talk more about this in the modern day section because there are some very interesting recent events unfolding around the eradication of polio. But most recently, it was also present in Africa, especially Central and East Africa. Okay, so when we talk about elimination and removing polio... We are talking about preventative medicine, which means we are talking about vaccines again, which we talked about in great depth in our smallpox episode as well. For polio, there are two kinds of vaccine. One is the injection of an inactive virus. So that's a shot. And that protects against all three types of polio. And you usually get three doses of it that you have to come back and get one after another. And that's typically what's required in places like the US and Canada. I was given that as a kid. You have to get it to go to school. If you get all three shots, you are 99% immune. And if you get two of the shots, you're closer to like 90%, but it's quite effective. Then there's also a live attenuated vaccine. So it's a still active, but milder form of polio. And that's an oral vaccine. So you literally just like dump it in your mouth. The advantage here is that it's super easy to deliver. So you don't need to have clean needles. Um, you don't need to you know, go through all this process of like a painful shot and carrying all this equipment everywhere. You just squirt it in a kid's mouth. And it also has a lifelong immunity benefit because it's a live vaccine. However, storing live vaccines can be challenging because they have to be transported and stored at certain temperatures to make sure they don't die. It also comes in three sets. So you take one and then like six months another and then a few months later another. And it gives you 95% immunity if you get all three doses. So those doses were recommended in places where the virus was endemic, which means that it was like an ongoing disease within the population. So type 2 and type 3 wild polio virus have already been eliminated through vaccination pretty much everywhere, including Afghanistan and Pakistan. And type 1 is the one that's still being dealt with. Unfortunately, that is also the one that's most common cause of paralysis. So bummer. As I said, they're dealing with that in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And if you sort of look up a map of like, where is there polio? Uh, And you see a map of the infections, you will see some markers in Central and Western Africa. And this is just an interesting tidbit that we'll talk about a little bit more. But earlier I referred to polio as the wild polio virus. Um, these other markers are infections that are vaccine-derived polio. So we talked earlier again about these like live attenuated vaccines, which contain an actual piece of the virus itself. So if people are being vaccinated, there is a chance that they will actually just get kind of ill, but like with a really mild form of the disease, and then they just get over it, and then they're immune. But If they live in a place where there's still very poor hygiene, they can still spread the virus through their fecal matter. It's just the virus that they got from the vaccine, not from the wild. So the idea is that it's a much milder case. And for a while, this was called a really good thing because it was basically passive delivery of a vaccine. So people in the community would just get sick from the person who got sick from the vaccine. Mm. But 
if the population is still super susceptible and most of the people there haven't been vaccinated, aren't immune in any way, then this vaccine-derived polio can actually spread around the community and actually just mutate back into a severe version of the disease that then causes paralysis. So there are still cases and often it's like fine and it will end up with an immunity, but it can actually mutate back and become quite serious. So there is still some, there is still some polio in those countries, but it's actually derived from the vaccine, not from the wild polio, which is really crazy. Again, with the smallpox uh, parallels, almost sounds like the problem that they were having with inoculation. Yeah. So it is quite rare. Like there is a spread of vaccine-derived polio. I wouldn't call them like epidemics, but there are some cases. It's something like 750 of those over the last 30 years have turned out Mm -hmm. to be quite serious. Like it's not a huge number, but it is sort of a sad irony that that is happening from that. I'd imagine that the um, the anti-vax movement grabs on to that kind of thing. They do. And there is a lot about polio that they latch onto, which I'm going to talk about in my section because it's it's just a wild ride. I remember you texting me while you were doing the research and saying, "Ooh, I found all this cool stuff. And then like two minutes later, oops, wait, no, this is an anti-vax website. Give me a second. I need to read some more. Yeah. Well, okay. So I don't want to give it away. But like after like the methods and history section, when it got into the meat, I was like, oh, no, hold on. No. And you'll, I'll, I'll explain why later. <laughs> Take me back in time first. With pleasure. Uh, so today we'll be talking about a couple of things. So where histories of disease get complicated, which is like more or less part one. And then the development of technologies to cope with disease. Polio is actually not super well researched. It was quite frustrating for me this time around. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about some challenges and pitfalls of the field of disease history for the record i feel strongly that that's true in the modern day too so i will also discuss that excellent (laughs) we uh we need someone to do a lot more work on the history of polio because it's just a nightmare doesn't actually seem to be that well documented in the historical record either and at least until the late 18th century and especially starting in the 19th and 20th centuries when everyone starts to like lose it over polio. It's like people only really start to panic about it once it becomes a problem for them. So what I noticed right away while I was reading through what I call attempts at a history of polio, (laughs) there was a focus on art and artistic representations, and they were using that as anecdotal evidence of the disease being prevalent. Everyone who has a go at this will actually cite this portrayal of an Egyptian priest who's a priest to the goddess called Astarte. This, this person is apparently called Ruma or Roma. And this is on a stele dating back to 1450 to 1365 BC. And a stele is like an upright stone carving. So this priest has a walking stick. He has a shriveled leg and foot. And these are all char- characteristic of polio. So after this depiction, scholars uh, and journalists will typically jump forward in time to at least the 16th century. So I saw a mention of Peter Bruegel the Elder's paintings, which are entitled The Fight Between Carnival and Lent, dated 1559, which apparently portrays two severely disabled individuals with shriveled legs. But here's the thing. It's not just a painting of these two people with shriveled legs and having a hard time walking. It is a huge crowd piece. So it's a series of paintings about mm. about literally a carnival, like full of people, and they've picked out these two individual figures and said, you know what, this could be evidence of polio, which is not necessarily... I don't know. I, I was raising an eyebrow at that. Yeah. Like, really? I don't know. I would also argue that like probably representations of leprosy are yeah. quite similar. Yeah. But at least the leper is far more cu- like culturally constructed. You have all of these religious ties. Yeah. It is a recognizable disease. And um, with leprosy and syphilis, there's a lot of cultural baggage uh, going along with that. So actually, the artistic representations can tell us quite a lot more, I think, because they're less ambiguous. I'm not saying they're unambiguous, but they are less ambiguous. Yeah, so I I, I get the feeling that people are grasping at straws and being like, well, this could be this. Mm. So um, you you get a lot of a lot of that, like cherry picking from art history. But this isn't an analysis. Like, they'll just mention that there was a person with a shriveled leg. Right. And be like, hello, polio. 
and this probably signals the quality of the book I was reading, but anyway. Um, so overall, <laughs> scholars agree that the polio virus has been a problem for humans for at least 3,000 years. So direct quote from another source, <clears throat> poliomyelitis predates recorded history. Which is like super precise. <laughs> yeah. So if you know more, please write to us about this because we really want to know and the British Medical Journal was not the most helpful. Why doesn't anybody care about polio? I thought we all cared we about, care polio. about polio. What's but the I'm deal? gonna get into that in a little bit. So okay. <clears throat> So we've identified some problems with the studies with the historical studies of polio. Uh, the first clinical description of polio dates to 1789, and if you're curious, that is the date of the uh, French Revolution. So yeah, in 1789, the English <laughs> physician Michael Underwood writes about, quote-unquote, a debility of the lower extremes in children. So this debility of the lower extremes in children is considered fairly rare, and maybe not that serious. So there's that, but you're also starting to see epidemics in the 18th century. And then in 1840... Um, Jacob von Heine describes what he calls infantile spinal paralysis in pretty large numbers, and he recognizes it as a disease that was separate from other types of paralysis. So he publishes a monograph on that. It's the first of its kind, and that's 1840. I read it as Heine. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> Sometimes I write these things because like, I don't always write down all of the names of the dead white dudes because I just don't really think it's that important. Uh, but this particular one was, was picked for you, Maya. So... Thank you. So the term acute anterior poliomyelitis was coined in 1875. Um, in the 1880s and onwards, successive epidemics of polio among children uh, start to be a thing, and all of a sudden people are panicking. So that's right. In the space of 100 years, so from 1789 to like the 1880s, you go from Underwood's fairly relaxed description of debility of the lower extremes in children to full-on recurring epidemics in the industrialized countries of the West. And I saw a lot of speculation about polio being present in communities with really good hygiene. So how do we account for this fairly drastic shift occurring in a fairly short span of time, so 100 years? And why are there so few sources? So first of all, talked about it before, we'll keep talking about it again. Retrospective diagnosis is always hard for historians, and it's not always possible. So when the symptoms aren't stable or immediately recognizable, diagnosis from written sources and even images is pretty tricky. So first mm -hmm. of all, like, the physicians might not have identified it as a disease in its own right, and similarly without that information from physicians and from other medical and community practitioners, we can't really do very much with that. Um, secondly, I mean, maybe it wasn't a problem or not a perceived problem. So there are a lot of theories about that, <laughs> from the unsatisfactory book that I mentioned before, they actually <laughs> said that people had bigger problems to worry about than polio, for example, smallpox and plague. So, like, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a grain... It just got overwhelmed. Yeah, maybe there's a grain of truth to that, and maybe there were, um, there were more, like, real and present threats uh, from an epidemic point of view, but I'm not really sure it works that way. So if it were a recurring, identifiable issue for physicians surely we would have better documentation. But absence from the records maybe just means that diagnosis at the time was fairly tricky. So as a historian, when you have a disease like polio and you want to do a history of it, what do you do? And I have some suggestions for any aspiring <laughs> doctoral students who want to do this. So one thing you can do is you can widen the scope so you can search for something a lot more general and see if it gives you any more clues. Uh, to the disease. So in this case, for example, I'd start with either something as broad as child mortality or even paralysis. Sure. I would go with that. Um, and given a lot more time to put this together, I think I would start by looking at the clinical description first. So the 1789 Underwood description, uh, identify some key categories, like diagnostic categories from that, and try to work my way back. Mm -hmm. um, another thing you can do is delve into the material culture. And material culture just means objects. So the stuff that you see in museums that you can study to learn more about the past. And that's kind of what people are trying to get at when they're looking at the artwork. And so while I was unimpressed with the unsystematic mentioning of people with impaired mobility in artwork, it's actually a step 
in the right direction. Like it is a place to mm-hmm. start. It's just maybe not the maybe maybe not what we want for the whole analysis. <laughs> so, for example, you would need like a larger sample size of artwork, uh, many more examples, and also be prepared to talk about the symbolism of these depictions because when you're looking at art, obviously there's no guarantee that it is an accurate representation of anything. Like it, it could just be totally made up. Um, but that can also tell you a little bit about the cultural standing of things like paralysis. Whether or not you want to do that is totally up to you. <laughs> I know I would not want to do that, but, you know, someone should do it. I think it's important. And back to our timeline. <laughs> so you'll remember that in our last episode we talked about vaccination in the context of smallpox. So this technology, invented-ish, made famous by Edward Jenner, Uh, totally changed the way that we approached communicable disease. So we did an episode on anthrax as well, and anthrax provides a couple of parallels. So for example, uh, the difficulty grouping observed symptoms together for a proper diagnosis of a single disease, and also the aspect of animal testing. So quick refresher on anthrax. In 1877, Robert Coe, he's back, uh, grows... Yay! (laughs) Yay! Robert, I missed him him too. I've been looking for an excuse to talk about him again. (laughs) Said no one ever. Um, So in 1877, Robert Koch grows anthrax in the lab and he injects it into animals, basically starting the field of bacteriology. And then in 1881, Louis Pasteur um, builds on this work and creates a highly successful anthrax vaccine. That's kind of all you need to know. And then throughout the 1880s and the 1890s, we see a rising number of epidemics and basically a frenzy over polio. In 1905, someone called Otto Wickman um, first observes that polio is infectious. Man, that's late. I know. I know. That's like, that's that's just over 100 years ago. It's really late. I mean, I knew the vaccine and stuff came quite late, but that's, that they didn't even realize it was infectious? Yeah. Wild. Right? Okay, sorry. In the grand scheme of things, that's quite recent. In 1909, so four years after that, um, Landsteiner and Popper show that it is possible to infect monkeys with polio, so animal testing. It's later shown that serum from these infected monkeys... It's important for later. Okay, thank you. It's later shown that serum from the infected monkeys contained antibodies for polio. Very important. You see, there, you see where this is going. Um, they're basically mm-hmm. taking the, le- the lessons from Jenner, Koch, and, and others and using animal experimentation and intentional infection to come up with a vaccine. Poor animals. 1949, Nobel Prize, 1954. Great. So I'm not going to give you the names of these people, but suffice it to say, uh, they're building on each other's work to try to solve the problem. And then I will let Maya talk about that later. Another really interesting rabbit hole that I fell into was the invention of respirators, which current events will probably spark Mm -hmm. interest in. So the first mechanized ventilator was invented in 1832 uh, by Scottish physician John Dalziel. And this is an airtight box that you would put the patient into that you would pump full of air using bellows, which caused the chest cavity to constrict and relax, which simulates a natural respiration process. There are a lot of designs for so-called negative pressure respirators. Sorry, does that mean that someone has to sit next to it and pump it? (laughs) Correct. Oh, God. Although I'm sure they found a way to mechanize Um, that. Uh, I just kind of flippantly (laughs) said that because I love the image of someone just, like, manually pumping bellows. Now I'm going to give you a quote from this fantastic article that I found through uh, the Welcome Collection. They did a whole article about the history of respirators in the context of COVID. So it's like clearly someone who was sitting at home in lockdown in July and who really needed a project (laughs) and who's an expert on respirators. So, okay, here we go. In the first half of the 20th century, polio was the leading cause of death in children and young adults. In extreme cases, the virus can cause spinal and respiratory paralysis, making it impossible to breathe. Few diseases were more dreaded by parents. An outbreak in Brooklyn in 1916 led to the widespread closure of cinemas, parks, and swimming pools. The names and addresses of the infected were published daily in newspapers. Warning notices were nailed to their doors, and entire families were forced into quarantine. Sound familiar? Um, Mm -hmm. So during this outbreak, the industrial hygienist Philip Drinker, who's associated with Harvard, their school for um, hygiene and tropical medicine, I think, begins to work on the first iron lung with someone called uh, Louis Agassiz Shaw. So this is uh, what's called a positive pressure ventilator that paved the way for the modern ventilators that we still use today. 
So to clarify, it is because of engineering responses to diseases like polio, which were a problem in the early 20th century, that we now have the capability uh, to, to help people with severe breathing issues today. So the iron lung basically acts like a vacuum. It's powered by a motor. Um, and once again, like in that mechanized 19th century version, it is causing uh, the chest cavity, actually the body in general, to like create and release pressure. So it's simulating breathing uh, while the patient is lying inside. The respirator, the iron lung, was first used in 1928 at the Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, treatment was a success, and uh, they continued to work on it over a few decades. The iron lung saved a lot of lives. Sometimes people would stay in there for a matter of weeks or months. Sometimes they would be stuck in there for the rest of their lives. Ugh. Yeah. Just awful. It's horrible. Um, and it was only... In 1955, here I'm quoting, after Jonas Salk developed the first safe and effective polio vaccine, that cases began to decline and the need for iron lungs tailed off. How crazy is it that the vaccine came in 1955? Late. So late. I mean, arguably even crazier is that they came up with the vaccine in 1955 and it's pretty much wild polio is eradicated in all but two countries. Mm -hmm. And as a side note, I had the Radiohead song Iron Lung stuck in my head the entire time I was doing this. And I did not know what it was for a very long time. Uh, I always thought it was just like a kind of depressing song. I mean, now I know it's even more depressing than I thought it was, which shouldn't really surprise me with Radiohead. So that's the history. That's good. Do you want to bring it back to the present day? It's really not that far back in the past. No, I mean, it's contemporary, yeah. It's It's in living memory, yeah. I mean, and it's worth also saying that part of the reason that we wanted to do polio is because literally the beginning of this week, the WHO announced that they had eradicated wild polio in Africa, which I will talk more about, but like, oh, that's fantastic. This is like happening. That is a huge win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but that whole uh, vaccine caused polio situation sucks a little bit. But anyway. um, Okay. So like you said, polio has been around for a while. Early 1900s is when it started to get really feared in industrialized countries. But at this point, we know that basically everything was really feared in the early 1900s in industrialized countries. We've got the vaccine in the 50s, and it starts to get really effective in the 60s. Um, And that's when the use of the vaccine really gets popularized and polio is brought under control in industrialized nations, especially similar vibe to smallpox. And so this is really interesting in what you were talking about, about uh, sanitation. So basically, when infants are born, they have enough protective antibodies left over from their mother that if they catch polio, they can protect themselves against it and then they're immunized. But the cleaner things got with sanitation, the more sensitive people there were because they hadn't already caught it. So when you're born as a baby and you're exposed to polio, your mother hasn't had polio, you don't have any antibodies, and then you're not safe anymore. Are you laughing because I said born as a baby? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) It could be a Benjamin Button situation. You don't know. Anyway, so sanitation, less people are getting polio, but that means that when you're born, if you're exposed to polio, you don't have the same protection as you did before, and then you get really sick. So basically there was this balance between the virus and the humans, and we upset it by getting cleaner. That's what led to all these like epidemics, and this that carried on through the 40s, and then we started actually being able to vaccinate against it. Another interesting fact, the now well-known March of Dimes actually started as a polio charity. So it was raising money for infantile paralysis. Now March of Dimes is this like huge thing. Maybe not in Canada, but in the States, it's just like huge deal. We raise money. Anyway, they used to be raising money for infantile paralysis. And one of the things that they did in 1941 is they opened a polio center specifically targeted towards working with the black population in the Southern United States trying to sort of counteract a bit decades of medical racism. And here's the fun part. This facility was at the Tuskegee Institute, oh. 
So if you listen to our syphilis episode, you will remember that the Tuskegee Institute is the same place where, simultaneously to the opening of this polio treatment facility, the terrible Tuskegee syphilis experiment was happening. Also, this is the place where the cells of Henrietta Lacks were being farmed. And I won't go too deep into Henrietta Lacks because I'm sure we will do another episode where we examine her more closely. But basically, she was a black woman who had a really aggressive form of cancer. As she was dying, her cancer cells were harvested and they had been reproduced over and over and over again, but not really with like consent or benefit to anyone in her family. And they didn't even know it was happening for many years. Um, these cells are used for trying to figure out different treatments for cancer, but also for treating a variety of other things because essentially the cells are so mutated that they can handle being made very, very sick without dying. So you can subject them to rigorous treatments. So those cells, they basically made a factory at the Tuskegee Institute for duplicating just like millions of those cells and sending them out to like institutes for research all over the United States. So because those cells were able to contract polio without dying, the Henrietta Lacks cells, known as HALA, were critical to the development of the polio vaccine, which is wild. And a lot of this was happening because this is just like so much random stuff. A lot of that stuff was happening at the Tuskegee Institute because that's also where George Washington Carver was based, the peanut guy. So George Washington Carver was an American scientist, but like he was a black scientist. Okay. In the early 1900s. And he was like promoting different crops alternative to cotton. He wanted poor subsistence farmers to farm other things like peanuts or sweet potatoes to improve their quality of life and the kind of food that they were producing. Um, and honestly was like a really early proponent of environmentalism. And he was a food scientist also at the Tuskegee Institute. And one of the things that he did was he was creating peanut oil and he was using peanut oil as part of a treatment for polio, basically like massaging patients' legs with peanut oil to try and help them with their paralysis and pain. And all of this was happening not only at, but like concurrent with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. I'm going to need to read a book about Tuskegee because literally what the fuck was happening? <laughs> like, I mean, the inconsistency of the thing is so, I mean, it's horrifying, but it's interesting. Um, okay. I'm going to bring it more contemporary, but it is worth noting that unsurprisingly polio treatment was super racialized in the United States during this time. Shock. So for many years, yeah, right. When is it not? For many years in the U.S., polio was seen as a disease that only white people got which really flips the script a little bit, mostly because of like racism and limited access to health services that were available in the black community. So it's not like they weren't getting as sick. They just didn't really have access to like diagnostics or treatment. Basically, white people literally thought that black people were too primitive to get this very civilized disease. That's a really interesting interpretation of things. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? That's so Because usually it's like, they're poor, they live in crowded conditions, and so people are getting sick more frequently, so it's a disease of poverty and race. It's potentially true that um, sanitation was still so poor in those communities that there was actually just a built-up resistance, but that is uh, yeah. speculation. So anyway, so this center in Tuskegee opened up to treat polio in the black community because it started to become more and more apparent that it was a, a problem. And it became this really great visual optics for the civil rights movement, right? You have medical equality, you have access to resources, and most importantly, unlike diseases like syphilis, they're totally different racial connotations, right? Like it's not associated with being black. It doesn't have really negative things about like sex, being dirty associated with it. So, and also because the center appeals to disabled children rather than adults, it made it even more palatable. So it presents the civil rights movement with this great visual on, you know, there is medical racism, but like let's desegregate it and move forward with creating a more egalitarian health system. Again, in direct parallel with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but I digress. Mm -hmm. There is a very good article about race and polio in the US that we will link that I recommend. And there is just obviously so much more than we would ever have time to unpack, but crazy stuff. 
So similar stuff to this like medical racism that's happening in the U.S. is happening around the world. And it's part of a theory called medical colonialism, which I obviously got caught in a beautiful rabbit hole of because it's something that I care very much about. Um, And that will be important later. Basically, and this is not just true of polio, the whole continent of Africa has historically been treated by colonizers as just a testing ground for medicine. And this is still going on, right? You have examples of like Pfizer and all these other big medical companies not getting ethics approval and just going in and like testing things on communities across Africa. Basically, the whole continent was like one giant Tuskegee experiment. Like we discussed last time, vaccination campaigns could be effective in eliminating a disease, yes, But often experimental vaccines were just tested on African populations at large just to see if they were effective or not. Like the human trial was testing it on people in Africa without getting their permission because there's just not as much red tape as there is in Europe and North America. And this is still true. There's just not as much red tape. So this is true of polio as well as all these other things. And it was tested in the Belgian Congo and the Belgians are notorious for their cruelty during colonialism. There's this really good episode of uh, this this podcast called Noble Blood about Leopold of Belgium which covers um, (laughs) the abuses in the Congo uh, pretty extensively if you're interested it's like a fairly entertaining if disturbing narrative. Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit more about this in the context of polio but like The Belgian colonizers were notorious for being amongst the most cruel and destructive of them all. And the Congo is still feeling the repercussions of that, particularly in the mining industry. Should not surprise anyone that they basically didn't give a bleep about anyone. Okay, so let me go back to my timeline. Just remember medical colonialism is terrible and we'll return to it. (laughs) So in the 50s and 60s, we've got our more effective vaccines and in the industrialized world, it starts to get under control. So it's not until the 70s that they start to do something called a global lameness study. They sort of go about evaluating the causes for that and they find that essentially the rates that they believe are co- rates of lameness that they believe are caused by polio are essentially at the same rate as it was during epidemics in North America. And they're like, oopsies, right. It's also a problem in Africa. Great. Great. Excellent. So what did the, what did the white folk have to say about that? So they become, they decide that like, it's time for us to intervene. We'll bring vaccines. We've got a good vaccines. We'll help get it under control. They, have it eliminated, they declare elimination in North America and Europe in 1979. And then they start the Global Polio Elimination Project in 1988. They have a trivalent vaccine shot. So trivalent means it's all three strains of the vaccine. You mentioned that was invented in 52 by Salk. And then the oral vaccine was invented shortly after by the guy named Sabin in 1963 which they also call the sugar cube vaccine because you just sort of drop, you could drop it onto a sugar cube and give it to a kid to eat, I believe. And this is one of the ones that's tested in other countries before put into use Uh in the US, which is rude. And again, this is my problem with the research is that there'll just be a line. They'll be like, anyway, it was tested in Africa and then we used it in North America. And then they just go on about how effective it was in North America. And you're like, yeah, but go back to that bit. (laughs) <laughs> where you tested it on humans without their permission. But, yeah, okay. that line that signals cool. you don't want to talk about it because it's really messed up. Yeah, and I really struggled with like finding research about these tests, and I will go into why right now. So I'm going to do a case study, but basically research and vaccination efforts ramp up around the world. They eliminate the wild transmission of polio. They're super effective, and there is this one spot where we hit a hiccup and people start to get really alarmed, right? So this is happening in the late 80s, early 90s. What else happened in the 80s and 90s? HIV-AIDS epidemic came into full swing, and you remember a lot of what was being said around HIV-AIDS was super racist. People are saying it came from monkeys who spread it to black people in Africa, and then it came to North America, and then also people started being real homophobic, and it was just a cluster fuck of everybody being jerks about various things. Great. 
as I mentioned, was of great importance during your section, research was being done on the polio vaccine uh, using monkey cells because they are so similar to humans. So vaccines are developed using monkey tissue cultures, and then they take those tissue cultures and they go and they test them in the Belgian Congo on people. This guy, whose name I've actually not written down, is trying to come up with a more effective vaccine. He does the tests on monkey tissue cultures in the 60s, like was the norm. And he gets permission from the people in Belgium to go and do tests in the Belgian Congo. Doesn't ask anybody in the Congo. He asks the colonial overlords if he may please go. And of course the Belgians are like, oh my God, medical testing? Yes, we love that. Go for it. And so he goes off and he does like not a very big study. And he basically just tests his vaccine on a bunch of people. And then it's like, seems to be quite effective. Let's carry on, shall we? Some jerk writes this article in the Rolling Stone, which like, yes, the music <laughs> magazine, what are you doing? Saying that HIV must have come from the polio vaccine, right? So that's how it got its start in Africa and then to the US, right? Vaccine, monkeys, black people, check, 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 let's go. And then this guy named Hooper writes a whole book about it and it goes viral and people love it and they think it's a super compelling argument. And much like autism claims, this really takes hold. People are really scared all over the world. And I'm, I'm sure I don't need to say this, but it is not true. First of all, HIV was already spread amongst humans long before the trials in the 50s and 60s. Second, the vaccines were done on monkey cells, not chimpanzee cells, which is where simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV, is present. Third... Even if the simian version had been the cause of HIV, which it's not, the simian version present in chimps in that area, whose cells weren't even used for testing, had the wrong strain in the first place. It's like, none of it works. <laughs> Basically a conspiracy theory that's been debunked left, right, and center. But of course, again, much like the autism conspiracy, it caused a lot of issues. People are really compelled by this. And this is where I came into the problem with that article I was reading because the first half is talking about the history and the development and all the information was true. I was like, yep, sulk, yep, read this, great, great, great. And then the next section is called HIV. And then the section after that is called cancer. And I was like, <laughs> all right, hold up just a second. And then I realized it was from an anti-vax group. So one specific example is in Nigeria. In 2003, there was essentially a nationwide boycott of the polio vaccine that was supported by a lot of leaders, specifically religious leaders. And major fears included that the vaccine would give them HIV, that it contained cancerous agents, that it promoted infertility, like rumors that are all super pervasive around the world, especially on anti-vax sites. And I know that because they kept popping up. So part of the reason I can't do research about this guy doing tests in the Congo on people who didn't give their permission is because if you research polio, Africa, vaccine, you get HIV, cancer, it's killing people. It started there. We've debunked the claim that it started there. Like you don't find anything about yeah. his actual work and like what he was doing. So anyway. Um, obviously, there's a lot of historical background there about colonial mistrust, unethical vaccination trials that had just happened in Nigeria, I believe, with Pfizer, political and social issues. Like, it all feeds in into this, like, clusterfuck where basically there was this huge boycott and everyone refused to get vaccinated. So harmful. It's People were getting sick and dying. Like, huge education efforts around the country. Lots of other work on, like, communicating the positive impact, like, undoing the stigma. So much work was done. And a few years later, they were back on track, which brings us to today, where just a week ago, Africa was declared free of wild polio, Yay. which means we only have it in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Hooray. So there is still vaccine-caused polio in 16 countries in Africa. And again, for what it's worth, this only happens because they are using the cheaper, easier oral vaccine. So the reason we don't have that in North America and Europe is because we all got the shot. 
which doesn't cause this problem and still gives you immunity. But I digress. I don't think you digress at all. <laughs> the wild virus. <laughs> That's not our digression. You're right. I don't. That was my whole point. Like it is, it, it's hard to store, but it is like easier to deliver and you don't need all the different needles and stuff. And I totally get that. But like, it's obviously causing a problem, but okay. So this wild virus is only the second virus ever to be eliminated from the African continent right after smallpox. Yes. Yay. But that doesn't mean it's all over. It means we need to keep giving the three doses of the oral vaccine so that everyone is immune to the virus that's caused by the vaccine so it doesn't mutate. Um, but overall, it's much milder. It's easier to deal with. So it is generally quite good news. As per usual, there's just so much more to talk about here. We could talk about how people are affected by the disease throughout their lifetime, even after the rest of their community is vaccinated. We could talk more about medical racism. We could talk so much more about medical colonialism. We could talk about how little research there is on medical colonialism, which blows my mind. I will settle with, you know, the discussion that we already had. But this is yet another example of a way in which, like, promoting general population health only really happens through unethical practices. Like only through harming others do we end up with this greater good. And I think that's a really big, like we've talked about that a lot. It's a big statement and there's a lot to unpack there. So I won't. This is where um, historical work could actually come in really handy to put that into perspective and allow us to dismantle it, I think, especially given that it is such a contemporary history. But even the contemporary histories where we have more records are still not done very well. Absolutely. Which is like a major gap in the literature, I think, and something that needs to be addressed because it seems to have enough parallels with our current <laughs> uh, healthcare <laughs> predicaments. It does. And I actually found a really interesting article about how I think a French doctor was like, okay, well, we've come up with a sample vaccine. Um, we should go test it in Africa. You mean for COVID? great yeah for covid and everyone was like okay first of all this is polio all over again slash every other disease ever slash what what are you thinking so yeah polio so overall i think we've ended up in a good place on it but as usual there's like a real history of oppressive mm -hmm. and racist behavior behind it absolutely and also a lot of innovation uh and i was really yeah. struck by that when i when i was reading up on the respirators when the problem presents itself in the appropriate place with the appropriate resources, people all of a sudden care in these industrialized, predominantly white countries in the 19th century. And there is a concerted effort in the scientific community to really just sort this out, which I think needs to be put in its proper historical context and needs to be done almost as like a global history. Like I think it would be really helpful to take that narrative that I just spoke about, the um, academic and scientific communities coming together, blah, 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 and also putting that in the context of what was happening in the developing world, because I'm sure that 1950s, 1960s was not the beginning of that story. No, absolutely not. And I think you've got a history of the way colonial nations treated indigenous peoples when they were ill. That plays a big role in that. But then you've also got a history of people who, I mean, who who only died recently, right? Like the guy who did the testing in Congo passed away like maybe like seven years ago or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. But, and, you know, by many is treated as this medical hero. It just yeah. totally eliminates the lives of the people who it was done um, on the backs of. And it shows a pattern, uh, a pattern of abuse across many different diseases and many different technologies. So something I noticed when I was first working on my thesis and doing research on the literature regarding smallpox, um, what I found super interesting was the timing of all of the academic work in history that was being done on smallpox. What I found was that really good academic research on this topic really only occurred once uh, scholars felt that they could consider that disease as a disease of the past. So like they found it easier to do a pure retrospective only once they felt that we had moved on from that point where smallpox was a, a real and present threat. And I wonder if there's something mm -hmm. to be said about polio and it's, and just how recent it was, how modern it is. And 
uh, where it lives in our popular culture because we kind of grow up with that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, totally. It does paint us as a very like single-minded human culture. That's about, not like, news. We can only worry about this one big problem <laughs> at a news. time. I swear, uh, when we ended last episode, we were saying exactly the same thing. I do have a really good hooray for you, and it is still related. Okay, tell me. Okay, so when I was reading about the iron lung, I found out that in the 18th century, there was this thing established called the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned. <laughs> Which is a society, apparently, yeah, apparently, which was a society uh, that was formed in the 18th century in Britain. And um, they used to set up like little resuscitation kits along the banks of rivers <laughs> and train people in mouth to mouth. Oh it's so God. funny. I just really liked That's it. Cute. Yeah. Everyone just trying their best. I like that, too. What have I got? OK, so we've been watching Australian MasterChef. <laughs> OK. From last year. And it's inspired so many amazing meals and also terrible Australian accents. Like, cannot do it. Okay. So we wanted to make dumplings last night. And I'm gluten-free. And usually I make these, like, rice paper dumplings. And it's, like, they're fine. It's a bit labor-intensive. And I found an actual wonton wrapper recipe that's gluten-free. And it tastes identical. It's amazing. It's beautiful. However, I did not realize that one recipe would make, like, hundreds of wrappers <laughs> and that they're also extremely labor intensive. So I was like, I'll just make a couple a few hours before we start dinner. Two and a half la- hours later, I've made 70 plus dumpling wrappers. Both my wrists are like hurting me <laughs> because I spent so long like really oh, rolling no. out this wonton dough trying to get it. But on so the bright stupid. side, you will be eating dumplings for probably the rest of your natural life. Oh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I had some for breakfast. They are. It was worth it. It was all worth it. This was nice. Stay enraged. And stay engaged. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>